Our English word uh, for talent has its derivation in the parable which is our scripture today. It points to um, a natural or acquired aptitude, a mental or physical ability, natural or acquired, inherited or learned on the part of people. Talent. Some people are talented. Some have many talents. Some have a few talents. In the Greek world, of course, the word for talent uh, was a reference to monetary exchange. Most often measured out in silver, a talent would be worth about 6,000 uh, uh, measures of silver, or 6,000 denarii. And a denarius, you remember, was the equivalent of one day's wage. So to talk about a talent uh, was to talk about an extraordinarily large sum of money. If, however, you study the context of Jesus' teaching in this particular part of the Bible, you will begin to understand that in a strict sense, you take the English understanding and the Greek understanding and put them together with what Jesus is saying, and you begin to realize that he's talking about the privileges and opportunities we have to be involved in the work of the kingdom. And when you think about it in terms of opportunities that are measured in accordance to our abilities, measured in relationship to our abilities, then this parable comes to life. It's cast in the same mold as many of the stories of Jesus. The master uh, goes, the master is absent, and the master returns. All of those have the same character about them. And the problem with all the people involved, or at least some of them, is during the absence of the master. And that's no different from today. We've always uh, had our hardest times when we felt uh, distance between ourselves and God, when we didn't feel especially close. We can handle those close times. It's those times when we feel that the master is absent that we have difficulties. But before he goes into a far country, Jesus tells us he gives one man five talents, gives another man two and another man one. And while they're gone, each of them responds. Two of them in a good way and one in not a good way. Two of them double theirs. The one who had been given five went out and took advantage of his opportunities and acquired five more. And the one who had been given two talents went out and doubled his. But that one poor fellow buried his in the ground for safekeeping and didn't add to it. Immediately on reading the story, you understand that our God uh, treats us as individuals. We've noted that in all of these sayings. He, he doesn't deal with us in mass. People have different abilities. 
He gave talents in accordance to abilities. He gives us opportunities that match our abilities. He gives us abilities to match our opportunities. But it's always on a personal basis. We aren't all equal. We should have equal opportunities. But we aren't all equal, thank God. Our Creator knows us as individuals. I remember reading that story about a secretary in Detroit who burst into her, her boss's office on uh, one day in 1927. And she said to her boss, Mr. Smith, a man just flew across the Atlantic by himself. And uh, Mr. Smith just kept on working. And she said, you didn't hear me. She said, a man just flew across the Atlantic by himself. And Mr. Smith said, I heard you. I said, a man by himself can do anything. said, uh, now if a committee does it, you come in and tell me about it. Uh, so glad he didn't make us a committee. But he, he, he made us as individuals. And, and he knows what he gives to each one of us. And it's always his expectations are always directly related to our opportunities and to our abilities. But because he knows what he's given us, that means when at last he comes back to settle accounts, he can expect a strict accounting. For we may kid ourselves and we may kid others, but here is our master, here is our creator, and when he comes back to settle accounts, oh, then, then this is a time for strict accounting. Of course, two of them who had doubled their opportunities and their talents heard his well-done, good and faithful servant. Isn't it interesting that when he comes to an accounting time, all of our distinctions disappear, whether we have many talents or whether we have a few talents. It doesn't matter. We still get that same well-done, good and faithful servant. And the reward of good service is you get to, do, you get to have more service. Uh, you've been faithful over a little, I will make you master over much. You'll get many more opportunities for service when you're faithful over the few you've been given. But whether you have five or whether you have two or whatever the number, all of the, uh, of the distinctions disappear. It was a good thing for the master to remind us that like our friends whose memories we honor today. There is a time when we have to uh, approach the master and, and give an account of how we've dealt with the opportunities to serve that he has given to us. I remember that story about Bishop Gore. Heard somebody tell it recently. The bishop had come to ordination night at annual conference 
and he, and he had a class of young ministers uh, standing at the altar before him, just like they stand here every year at annual conference time. And the bishop was saying, uh, do you promise to do this? And do you promise to do that? And he kept on, do you, do you, do you? And they all kept answering. And then finally the bishop was struck by a new thought. And he hesitated for a moment and he said to that class of ministers, I want you to remember one thing, that the day is coming when the do you question will be changed to did you. That question is changed for every one of us. Do you promise to use the gift of life? Do you promise to use your opportunities to serve? Will finally be changed to, to did you? It's not how much we have. Look at that widow who gave a penny and achieved immortality through her gift. The saving question for those of us who don't have very much, the saving question is, what did you do with what you have? What did you do with it? Well, what did you make of the opportunities you had and of the chances you had for doing good? What did you make of those? Well, that poor man who never understood the nature of his responsibility or just flat out rebelled against it. We don't know which. He had his in the ground. Well, the rabbis had told them that the safest place for money was in the ground or treasure of any kind. Hide your treasure in the ground. You remember in the 13th chapter, uh, Jesus had talked about a man finding a treasure hid in a field. They didn't have vaults like we have them, and so people buried uh, their treasures. We can remember folk doing that. Uh, some of us can, or people talking about a buried treasure. It's always held a fascination for us. And here was this man who decided to exchange service for security. He would rather be secure. He wanted to just uh, keep it safe. And you remember when Jesus came back and questioned him, it wasn't about his success or his failure. And what made the master angry was this man had not bothered to try. Jesus doesn't like this play it safe kind of discipleship. He expects us to take some risk as we claim our opportunities to serve him. You know, you can take any baby in the world, even my granddaughter, and you knew I'd worked that in. You can take any, any baby in the world and put your finger in their little hand and they'll close down on it. It doesn't matter how young, they come into the world with the ability to grip and to hold on. That is a, that is a special gift. And the problem is we hold on to that grubby clinging to things all the way through life. And many times we don't fail to grow out of that clinging stage. We, we hold on to things. I know people who hold on to their hurts, just embalm them. And when they've had a, something bad happen, instead of letting that old memory go, they keep telling it over and over and over. They just want to keep it alive want to keep it alive. People keep holding on to their sins. 
And, and people hold on to their material goods just like somehow they're going to be able to, to cling to them so tightly they can take them with them. Uh, one story has it that when Alexander the Great died, you remember he died at 33, conquered every known part of the world and then sat down and wept because he didn't have any more worlds to conquer. Alexander left instructions to leave his hands outside the casket and to leave them open. He wanted everyone to know that he who had conquered the whole world was going to his destiny with empty hands. And that's the way we always go to meet our maker. That's the way our friends have gone. But it's not empty-handed. We have our faith in Christ, and this parable tells us we also take with us our record of how we have handled the opportunities for service that have come to us. How have we dealt with them? I remember as a boy going to see my grandfather on the Swanee River. Near his house was a ice-cold, clear, crystal-clear spring called Telford Spring. Still there, not just was, but still there. And, and beside that spring, which was a delightful place to swim, there was a high hill, and someone had strung a cable up in one of the trees and then tied a rope to the end of it, and, and the older uh, children would run and swing out over that spring and drop from that rope, and it was an exhilarating experience. It looked so good to me that as a little boy, I decided I wanted to try it. Everything was going fine. I took the rope and I ran off the top of that hill and I swung out over that spring and then I made the mistake of looking down. Looked like a mile down there to that water. And, and, and I looked down after I turned loose with one hand. Well, it was too late and I just got rope burn all the way down from that one hand and did a belly flop in the shallows uh, on the side. Our God is always calling us to let go of what chokes and stifles us and to move out into the deep. He has called us to a life of adventure, to a life of faith. He has called us to a life of, of trusting Him, and, and we need to somehow overcome this business of holding on. The paradox of our faith is that if you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for the sake of Christ, you'll save it. Our friends have lost their lives, and now they have been given life and eternal life. But you know, not only did they have to get life when they went to heaven, but these who lost themselves for Christ gave life to the church while they lived. They brought life to the church on earth. I think about that little man, Mr. Cooper, who was a member of my first church. We only had 69 members. I remember Mr. Cooper lived in the project. I went to see him many times. You had to prove you were poor to live in the project where Mr. Cooper lived. I remember he had an old kerosene heater 
around which we had sat on a cold winter's day. He had an ancient car, an old Plymouth. I, I'd never seen a model that old. And it, it was in such desperate need of paint, but he didn't have the ability to get a paint job, and he certainly couldn't trade cars. He, he took a paintbrush and painted it himself. It was a sick color of blue. Just had ridges all over it. And he always went from first gear to third. He, he never used second. I don't know whether he didn't have one or he just didn't use it, but I, I can remember him still as he roared off in that old Plymouth as he'd come to church. Most of the time he wore overalls. And they had a pocket right in the center of those overalls. And inside that pocket, he had one of those old bullet pencils. You know, you pull out a stub and stick it in there, and then you write with that pencil. And he had a blue horse notebook he carried in that front pocket. <coughs> Mr. Cooper, who had, had done manual labor until his retirement and had only his Social Security, every Sunday in our little church would take out that blue horse notebook and make an entry there, $4.00 and the date he gave his $4. He wrote down every penny that came in and every penny that he gave in return. I remember standing, watching him in that old car as he left one Sunday. And the treasurer of our church turned to me and said, Brother Bill, you know our church wouldn't make it without Mr. Cooper. And I thought, well, yes, in a church of 69 members, $4, 52 Sundays out of the year, you can't make it without that in a church of 69 members. But I want to tell you, in a church of 13,500 members, you can't make it without Mr. Cooper's kind. People who are faithful over a little. You just can't make it without that kind of faithfulness. Wesley called that keeping a watch over your life. The world tells us to reach out and grab everything you can. The world tells us we ought to be like humpback uh, rodents running into a room and grabbing up everything and running out to our nest again. And they tell us that's the purpose of education, so you can make a lot of money, and that's the purpose of getting a better job, so you can have more. The world tells you that. And people like our Lord and Mr. Wesley say you better keep a watch over your life. The purpose of life is to lose it for Jesus' sake because only in the losing do you find it, do you take it up again. Mr. Wesley was 80 years old. He put down his old notebook. He took it up when he was a young man and determined that he could live on 28 pounds a year. That was another culture, another time. I know that. He said, I can live on 28 pounds a year. And that first year he was in the ministry, he made 32 pounds, and he gave away four and lived on 28. And the next year he made 36 pounds, and so he, he lived on 28 and gave away eight pounds. Do you know how many pounds Mr. Wesley made on, during the last year of his life? 
from all his publications and all of his income, he made 80,000 pounds. He lived on 28, and he gave the rest away. On his 80th birthday, Mr. Wesley said to one of his friends, I'm going to put this old notebook away. I now believe I can trust myself with my stewardship. He, he kept a watch on his life. It, it was something precious to him because it was a symbol of the fact that he would give himself back to God from whence he had come, and it's a precious symbol for us. For we have been called to be the people of God. We are those who have received gifts. Whatever they are, they come from God above. I can understand why those early Christians went back to that old church, the church of the Holy Sepulchre, oldest church in Jerusalem. I can understand why when the archaeologists dug down beside that foundation, they found on the ancient structure some words that had been chiseled there. Some of those early Christians had come back to that church from which their Lord had sent them out, and they had chiseled in the stone, Lord, we went. We went. We fulfilled our calling in our time. And now the church perpetuates our influence and they honor our memory. For we gave our lives back to the Lord of life and in the giving we discovered what life is all about. We thank God today for these persons who love this church still and who loved it during their little while with us. More than that, we are inspired by them and we pledge ourselves to be like them. Amen. Our hymn of commitment is Lead On, O King Eternal. Let those who wish to come and share in the work of Christ in this church. Would you come forward as we sing? Perhaps you've never confessed your faith in Christ, or perhaps you're a member of another church and you know God is calling you to be a part of this church. I invite you to come as we stand to sing our hymn of commitment.